Yeah, I was hoping that you would say it after me. <laughs> oh, whoops. Hello, YouTube. <laughs> Hello, YouTube, in indeed. Um, you, are, you have been blowing up uh, quite a lot lately. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Well, for me, it was never my objective in the first place. I've never really thought that the channel would get that big. Because with the current meta on YouTube Fitness, as you know, the informative uh, orientation of my channel isn't really particularly in, in, the, uh, in the proper order when it comes to getting big or getting popular. So I was always thinking that the channel would get to 10,000 subs around that and then just stall. So very surprised, actually, to have so many people who are uh, excited to hear what I have to share. Also hopeful, because it shows that uh, the fitness community is not dead. There are still people who want to live, who want to learn, who are not just in it for drama and entertainment. And then after that, for me, I'm at a point where I just make videos. I have a community now that have proven to me that they're willing to fight for what I have to say. And it's now my privilege to just continue on. To be honest with you, I don't really look at stats or things like this. I'm just worried more about the transmission of knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's totally fair. Um, you have been on the, the platform for what, like two two years? A bit so more? It, effectively, the channel, it's been two years, uh, 2.5 years, yeah. Right. And um, I like you, you must have been really, really active in the beginning because um, you have like over a thousand videos. So, I mean, did you have a period where you did like multiple videos a day even? or? Yes. So the first six months or so of the channel, I was publishing at least a video a day non-stop, meaning that there was no break, and sometimes two. So usually what would happen is that I would put out a training video at 9 a.m., and then at 5 p.m. I would put an informative video. And uh, the reason why I did that is because, one, it's the best way to grow a channel when you get started. Too many people try to go for quality over quantity, so they make a video a month, and it's like super well edited and, and gorgeous, but the issue is that the algorithm doesn't know you exist, so there's no point. What you want is you want to get your name out there. And the more videos you can put out, the more people are going to click on them, the more subscribers you're going to get. Once you have a base and a community, now you can slow down the production uh, the production rate and you can increase the quality, but only then. And it's also because, well, when you get started with YouTube, you have so many things to share. So I was excited to make a ton of videos. Right. Um, and uh, this is actually something I, I greatly admire you for because you... I don't know if this has changed. I'm assuming at this point it hasn't yet. Um, I don't know if it will in the future, but you always emphasize that for you, this is just a, a passion project and you're not intending this to be like a, a business. Um, considering that it's extremely admirable, your, your consistency and also frequency with uploads. So um, I wanted to ask, is this an effortful thing for you? Like recording videos? like? Um, do you is it just like a very natural thing for you how is how, how should i think of this well i think of myself as a natural teacher so the mm -hmm. thing that makes me the happiest in life is to teach people what i know and usually for the most part when i learn a new skill uh, the number one reason why i want that new skill is because i want to be able to pass it down to someone else after i've refined it so for me the channel is really an outlet and it's something i've always wanted to do and therefore, it's something I do effortlessly, meaning that for me, the production, the production uh, 
production of videos in particular is never something that I dread. And I'm trying to make sure that it's never going to become something I dread because I know that for having spoken to big fitness YouTubers, it can become that. You can end up just feeling like it's it's a grind, the grind, and you have to make a video, you have to get stats, you have to get clicks. And I think that's when everything just falls apart and the channel stops being real and it stops being honest and it starts being useless. So one of the methods I've employed is that I'm keeping that a passion project as you described. So I'm making sure that I'm not making any money from the channel. I'm not monetized. I don't sell programs. I don't sell anything. And the reason why I do that is twofold. One, because I think that too many people sell out in, in YouTube fitness and it it's faster than you think, meaning that there are people who are objectively good men, good women who start off with that passion and they think, oh, you know what, for my efforts, I should be rewarded. So I'm going to start selling this and selling that, but don't worry, my integrity is not going to come into question. Then two years later, they saw like supplements and they saw like garbage, like t-shirts or whatever. And it's like, all right, that's the slippery slope I want to avoid. So for me, I won't even get started. I will just continuously make this as an amateur. I will never make money out of it. So that way I can preserve myself and my integrity and I can preserve the channel and my love for it. Because the way I function is the second something starts becoming a chore and it's a job now, there's a 100% chance the love for this is going to die. So I know that for me, if I want to be able to keep making a ton of videos like this, I want to make sure that it's just 100% passion. Right, right. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I asked that is because but to some extent, I also think of myself as a natural kind of teacher type and, and people in my personal life have told me that as well. But I, for me, recording videos is very effortful. Um, I make so many mistakes. And if I just sat there the way you're doing it, uh, so like, I don't know, like there's like a nice flow to your videos. Like you, it's just, um, it's pleasant to listen to you talking. Actually, I want to talk about this a little bit, uh, but the um, conclusion here in this sentence was, I'm not like that. Like I, if I wouldn't edit my speeches, holy shit, like people would fall asleep still. I mean, a lot of them fall asleep because I have the same style as you in that they are not heavily edited, but, uh, but there are a lot of jump cuts in mine. Um, and actually, on that note, I, I want to say to you, um, if you can take this recommendation from me, I highly recommend to you that you never change this about yourself. Like, I, I would keep my videos just e exactly as unstructured because, I don't know, it, it has a weird charm to it. I cannot quite explain, but it, it makes it a lot more relatable. Like, <laughs> I saw a video of yours where... Like the first three minutes of the video, like nothing was happening. You were just setting up the camera. <laughs> I was looking at it like, man, like he he didn't even <laughs> couldn't even bother to edit that out. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah, it's it's very it's very charming in some weird way. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, it starts from a standpoint of prioritizing the portion of the video and con making content because that's something I realized quickly is that if you edit your videos, that's time added. To, to the, the entire process. So now yeah. you cannot make as many videos. And I know a ton of dudes who, the time they spend on the script and on recording the video is less than the time they spend editing. And to me, I can never allow that because if I were to allow that, I would make a video a, a week because my videos are hours long. So it's not something doable. And actually I made that mistake once. It's funny that you describe and you tell me never do that because I made that mistake once. I made a 15 minute video and I was like, okay, I'm going to make it as snippy as possible. And I, I shrunk it to 40 minutes. Mm. 
it took me three hours. So I was like, all right, this is the first and the last time I ever did that. And the funniest part is that people in the comments were like, NH, we like you, never do this again. Yeah. Like, leave the video as is. And therefore, if I have a community that is fine with my, my style, that is slower where I ponder, then I'm not going to bother trying to replicate the meta of YouTube fitness. On top of that, as you know, as you said, people like it, right? They are, there's a charm to it. So this means that for the people who are going to enjoy that are going to stay on the channel. And the ones that don't like it can just go somewhere else. I have a ton of people who are like, I like your videos, but they're too long. That's great. This means that you're not made for the channel because my videos are supposed to be long. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's actually really fascinating. I was just uh, telling this to my wife the other day. Um, I, I showed her a couple of videos of yours, like this is the guy I'm going to be talking with. And um, I was saying that it's very interesting how the more professional you become, basically the less relatable you are. And I, I noticed this, like even with uh, Derek more plates, more dates, like I'm, I'm not like a huge fan of his by any means, but he all of a sudden switched his background. Like he's always sitting in front of that wooden, whatever thingy behind him, or it's a sauna. That's what he says. I don't know if it actually is, but all of a sudden there was like a more professional looking background behind him. And like, there was something immediate, like, whoa, like what's happening? Is this the beginning of like smooth, like a smooth talking businessman, Derek, like not the dude who is just sitting in front of his laptop. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's very interesting how it works. Um, now, another thing about you and your um, persona on YouTube, it's, like it's it's very fascinating to me to think about like what makes people interesting because th there are some people who um i don't know they create so much drama and there's just always weird things happening around them that it's not surprising that they're interesting and intriguing but like in in your case for example like there is some like immediate um i don't know like a attraction i think that you're provoking in people and i had to think about like like where does that come from? And um, I mean, I think that, um, for example, the fact that you're not disclosing your name um, and I mean, it immediately add some extra mystery to the whole thing. Um, it like is any of this intentional on your part or is kind of just a, a pleasant side effect of, of this? It's a side effect because everything gimmicky. So any type of strategy to get big on YouTube, I'm not interested in. Because to me, it's a waste of time. And I'm at a point in my life where anything that that resembles a lie, I stay away from because it's mental strain on me. I don't want to have to remember if I said this at that date and I have to remember to lie again in two days. And also, I think it's not honest. So I just present myself for who I am. What you see on camera is the guy that I am in everyday life. That's how I speak. That's how I interact with people. For the fact that I don't disclose my name, it's because my anonymity is extremely important to me. But as you described, this creates an, an interesting mystery because people think, okay, what does he do in his life? Like, what is his name? Where does he live? All things that I've disclosed on the channel pretty much, meaning that I'm don't, not giving my exact location, but it doesn't stop people from wondering. And I think that at this point, if I were to reveal who I am, it would be a detriment to the channel because it doesn't matter who I am. What matters is what I, I talk about. And actually, natural hypertrophy is the perfect name for that because that's what I do. Brain hypertrophy, muscle hypertrophy. My name is, is useless. And actually, the more I, I grow older, the more I realize on a philosophical standpoint that names don't really matter that much. They are, they are 
denominations that we use to be able to know who we're talking to, who we're talking about. They're like pronouns in a sense. Of course, there is something deeper in us that is attached to the, to the name because our parents named us that. But when it comes to YouTube fitness, I think that it's simply not needed. And as you described with Derek, it can also become dangerous because the YouTuber can utilize that identity now, project, on, project it onto the audience and make with it what he wants. It's, it's what I call the Joe Rogan phenomenon, what you described with Derek. Joe Rogan started his podcast in like a dinky closet somewhere with his close friends with terrible quality. And this was the charm of it. And the more he evolved, the more professional it became. And now he's like sitting in a spaceship somewhere in Texas. <laughs> it has lost its charm and appeal. And it's, it's always, and it's something you describe, it's always interesting to see that people who have that special something can very easily lose it if they're not able to pinpoint it themselves. So he lost it because he didn't realize that people wanted to hear him interact with close friends or people that he had something in contact with, not just someone who makes a professional podcast. It's the same for me. If I gave up that vibe, I think that many people on the channel be like, all right, well, that's not interesting anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it, exactly the way it is. I think um, a, a lot of people just think about what makes them popular. And obviously there are multiple factors, but there are these subtleties. Um, now, one thing I wanted to ask you, and then slowly we can move on from this, this theme, but there, one thing I find very interesting is um, your, first of all, do you know like what your average kind of demographic is that are watching your videos, like age group? Um, yeah. I'm guessing mostly male, but. Um, yeah, it's 98% uh, males Yeah, from the age of uh, 15 to 32. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so do you, one thing I was thinking of is you talk a lot about, um, fanboyism, why that's bad and how people should be, uh, critical thinkers. Uh, you even said in one of your videos that like, like, don't, don't look up to me. Or, like, don't worship me. Like I, I have horrible thoughts. I did remember specifically that was, uh, one of the things you said. Um, but one thing I was thinking of is like, your way of communicating in some of your videos um, and your, yeah, I guess like manner of presentation, not, not in all videos, but in, in some, especially when you're feeling like very strongly about a, a given topic. I think that has a way of, of creating some fanboyism. Uh, maybe, maybe you disagree on that, but like you, you can be a, um, not preachy. That sounds like a negative and that's not how I mean it, but, but you know what I mean when I say that, like, um, like very, you know, impassionedly uh, stating what you believe about certain topics. Um, what, have you thought about this? And what do you think about this? I think you're on point. I, I don't disagree with that at all. It, it's mm. actually a problem I'm dealing with, something that I see on other channels as well. The more assertive and confident you are, the more people are going to flock around you. But the issue of a strong identity is that it tends to attract weak identities. And you become a sort of black hole that swallows small planets. The problem is that even someone like me who is aware of that cannot really help it. Because as you can, as you saw in my videos, when I'm passionate about something, I'm going to present my ideas as if they were the ideas, as if it was the truth. And actually, most great speakers do that. People who flip-flop all the time and say, well, it's just my opinion and we don't know it's 50-50. No one wants to listen to that. People want the truth, your truth. But by doing that, some people are just going to take it at face value. And it's tough for me to wrap my head around that because I've always been a critical thinker. When someone says something to me, even if it's innocuous, my first reaction is, okay, is this person lying to me? Is this person lying 
to themselves. I always try to dissect what the wood gives me. I always try to make sure that I'm getting something proper. Some people don't do that. Some people, they hear something and they're like, okay, this is it. And the worst part is that it just takes someone else to say something different for this idea in their brain to be replaced by the new one. Mm -hmm. So the critical thinking is dead. And the issue is that if you enter YouTube fitness like this, you're a sitting duck because you're just going to bounce from channel to channel, never retaining anything, always flip-flopping. This is why you have so many people who tell you, oh, I don't know who to listen to. And the answer is yourself. If you can develop critical thinking skills, every idea are going to be filtered by your own ability to understand the word. And then you can decide, okay, this is sound, this is not sound. And then you test it with experience. But that process is almost a lost art. Most no one does that. And it's something I'm trying to bring back. And the first method I have is to destroy fanboyism. Because if you can make people understand that it's a bad thing to worship another man like this, you're going to put them in a situation where now they have to think for themselves, they have to develop the skills. They can't just rely on someone. So on my channel, and actually today I'm supposed to record another video about fanboyism, mm -hmm. I continuously try to make people re remember I am my own self, I'm supposed to be able to be independent. What I learn on YouTube Fitness is just that, and the people that teach me these things are just men, nothing special. Yeah, yeah, and it's... um. It, it's quite crazy. So even for me, um, I I would say, like my channel has been around for longer. It's smaller than yours, um, but but you had like a pretty big like uh, bump now in like this last year, right? Like it's yeah. fair to say that you grew more than um, than the year before that. Oh, you so only been two years. Then you actually it's pretty linear. Then I guess. Well, the 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 channel did exploding back in December because uh, Alex from Alpha Destiny gave me uh, an interview. So it, it did manage to really help me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I saw that interview. It, it was great. Um, and so, uh, what was I going to say? Wait, uh, fanboyism. What were we talking about? Oh, my God. This happens to me in everyday life, not just not just in interviews. <laughs> um, so you were saying uh, you're yeah, destroying fanboyism. And I was saying, man. So you I, were saying that the channel was growing faster than yours. It was bigger than yours. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so I have, I don't have a lot of fanboys. I would say that, um, I would say that my, my audience is just, I'm, I'm getting very kind words from them, but I've, I've never seen, I think, I think the ultimate sign of, like having having some fanboys at least is when someone else is talking about you or something like that and then they basically jump in and mm -hmm. uh, like pick the person to pieces and i've so i've seen a little bit of that when you had that um back and forth with um what's his name revival fitness right um so yeah but but compared to the beginning i definitely have more still so so it's 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 inevitable to some extent. Really, the only way you can avoid that is if you either just never say your opinion. For example, a podcaster, they, he just asks questions or is like extremely humble to the point where it's like annoying to listen to like, okay, why am I listening to you? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Well, it's uh, for the fanboy thing, I've started to come to terms with the idea that for some people, they can't, they can't do otherwise. I mean, that it seems that their development for some reason when they were a kid was stunted or they never really had that ability to stand for themselves. 
off, so they always stand for someone else. Because what you describe when fine boys jump in to defend their author, their favorite creator, it's very hypocritical because it's not pure. They're not really doing that to defend the guy. They do that to defend themselves because it's their identity that's being attacked when you criticize the guy because it's the group that they belong to. They're fanboys of that guy. I have fanboys, of course. I make sure I insult them on a daily basis because I want them to understand that it's pathetic, that their way of existence is not right. But some people also perfectly understand that it's very nice to have an army of fanboys because again if someone criticizes you in any way shape or form you're going to have hundreds thousands of people who are going to just pile on top of that person and it can silence dissenting opinions and one of the power of very big channels is that is that they have an army of teenagers just ready to send death threats and insults to anyone who touches them and so it also kills debate and it kills discussion and that i personally cannot stand Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I said. Um, now, I mentioned the revival fitness thing, and that's kind of a good segue into, I mean, obviously, one of one of the main tenets of what you're about, and that's the natural status and, um, and being drug-free and, and being anti-drug, basically. Um, my question about that would be... Um, um, for one, maybe you can address this in your answer as well. Like when, like, was there like a, well, let's just start with this. Was there like a tipping point in your life that made you not only just natural and a natural person who happens to be drug free, but doesn't think about that much. Like that's how it is for me, for the most part, it's kind of like being male or straight or whatever. It's just is, I don't think about it for, but for you, it's a, it's a strong part of your identity almost like what, where, where does it, this, uh, come from? Well, I used to be like you, I used to be a default natural, just like many people. So I would just so happen to not take drugs. There wasn't any particular reason. And that mode of living is fine until you're faced with temptation of drugs, because if you don't have a deep reason to explain why you're not supposed to take them, chances are you're going to jump on them. And for me, it was back in 2016. I had, for some reason, don't ask me why I can't understand, I had put in my head that I had met my natural limits and that if I wanted to progress, I had to take drugs. And of course, I was greatly influenced by all of the YouTubers I was watching who were on drugs. And I don't know if you remember, but back then it was the big beginning of that honest wave mm-hmm. of enhanced lifters who were like finally coming to terms with the fact that no one was being fooled by them and they were starting to massively release videos explaining steroids and what they did. And of course, they presented that as prevention, but it was anything but that. In truth, it was temptation because they were sharing all of the good sides. I'm getting bigger. I do this with that product. And then like two minutes at the end, they would say, oh, actually, it's, it might spike your blood pressure. <laughs> Me being naive back then, I was like, oh, I'm going to do drugs. I'm going to get massive. But since I had some sense left, what I did first and foremost is I wanted to meet people who are doing steroids. And I was lucky enough that in my uni gym, there was a large group of men who were all on drugs, on a massive amount of drugs. And they were the bodybuilders of the gym, Mm -hmm. which shows the stigma around bodybuilding also, of course, because it's always linked to drugs now. This. So I went up to them, we sympathized, and uh, the more I spoke to them, the more I realized that, one, these guys didn't know much about training, meaning that I knew more than them, which was strange because they were 15 times my size, and two, they were not happy. 
Most of them were actually deeply miserable. A ton of them had very severe mental issues from the drug. And the few that were just still relatively normal were just plagued with demons. And once they opened up to me, I realized, wow, they, are, they don't like it. Right? They're all injecting on a weekly basis, but none of them are enjoying it. And they're all pre prisoners and slaves to the drug because now they can't back down. They're too addicted. And so I spoke to these guys for like six months. And after that time period, I realized, okay, I never want to do that to myself. Why would anyone do that to themselves? And this is what cemented to me the idea that being natural needed to become something more than just a state of existence. It needed to be a motivation and something to be very proud of. And if we can bring back that pride, I think that we can prevent many people from making the mistake that my friends made. These friends that jumped on drugs when they were in their teens and were never able to actually climb out of that hole afterwards because, well, they made that decision when they were not able to actually think straight and now it's too late. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, okay. And that's, uh, I, I was not aware of this. And um, that also then, I guess, explains uh, partly what I'm about to ask uh, next. And that is like your videos, you know, two, three hour long, super big elaborations on, on very unique topics, actually. I mean, that, that's kind of a cool thing about your channel. I forgot to compliment you on like, for example, fitness people giving some business advice, that's common. But like being into philosophy and all of these things in the way that you're into, I mean, that's, you're the only person that I know of. Um, so, so yeah, you have videos like this. On the other hand, at least the videos I've seen where he talked about PDs, it was, it kind of struck me as if it's like intentionally black and white. Like it's not, uh, I, I didn't see a lot of nuance. Um, is, is, is it like an intentional move from your end to make it like um, a, a clear dividing line that's like unmistakable for people or? Yes, it is because nuance is extremely important, especially in philosophy. Actually, if you like the ability to nuance your thoughts and concepts, they're most likely going to be bunk. But on the other hand, I have noticed and witnessed that nuance is used as a weapon by people users who constantly try to relativize and say, oh, it's not, it's not all bad and we're not all bad people. And I agree with that. I have a lot of storage users that passed away or are still alive that I respect greatly because they're good people. But the issue is that if you allow that weird middle ground to exist and that gray area to exist, this is the space that people enter before they jump to the dark side. And I say dark side on purpose because to me, there is the clear path, the natural path that everyone should stick to. And then there's the dark path. If I can take away that gray middle ground, I can make sure that the transition never occurs. And I understand that some people are going to tell me, well, that means that your speech again is, is very uh, Manichaean in nature because it's black and white and the world and life is simply not like this. And I perfectly agree. But I have found, and it's something we spoke about briefly with, with the revival fitness thing, that by not being rough enough and being too flimsy and like a little bit like a hippie on the matter of drug, you give freedom for people to make that mistake. You need to be very cut and dry and say, no, drugs are bad. It's a terrible mistake to do steroids. Here are all of the things you're going to have to deal with. Do not make that mistake. There's not even a 1% chance of you being able to make it if you take drugs. You're not going to be this special unicorn that is not going to get any side effects. Just don't do it. And that way it's clear. And I'm not giving any chance for anyone to buy my word, say, okay, he said this, so that means that I can do drugs. No, the answer is just no, stay natural. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, 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 this is tough. This is tough, and obviously, the issue is I think none of us can really tell how well this strategy is working versus the more nuanced one, because like you know, survivorship bias, right? Like you're you're going to come across people most likely with whom your message resonated to such an extent that it, it worked, but those that jumped ship, uh, probably those you will not hear about, uh, and and I mean. I'm not really talking about this um, at all, but I had, for example, a podcast um, episode where I talked with uh, Dr. Mike Isratel. And, and, and it is true that um, Mike gave a, like a very uh, thorough overview of the whole picture. And he did mention several times that like, like, these are not supplements. These are not things you buy at GNC. Like these are substances that will alter your body and, many positive and very many negative ways. And after that, I heard from several people um, that like, like a client of mine, relatively young guy said like, yeah, to be honest, like after your podcast with Mike Isretel, I, I was kind of thinking to myself that um, I, I, I would jump on. Then I changed my mind, but still like before that podcast, he didn't have that thought. So I mean, I, I kind of have to agree with you there. Um, I guess the only danger um, in, in the more radical approach is that if then the person is being still like swayed by someone, then I guess it's very easy to, uh, to like demonize someone like you who is standing for this, like as firmly as you do. Cause like, obviously if someone doesn't like you or, or wants to not like you for your message, then you know, the form can be criticized and like jumped on. It's like, oh yeah, I, I always, always, always knew that there was something off with that guy. I mean, like how, how is he yelling in the video? Like, is this the guy I'm going to trust? You know, whereas if you're more nuanced, then if it's a relatively intelligent person, it's always going to resonate them, even if they are trying to get convinced in towards the other side, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 100%. Actually, it's something that I went through, so I'm very aware of it, is that you have many young men who are on the verge. So they have a bias in them. They want to be convinced that doing drugs is okay. That's, that's what they want to hear. So they're going to seek out that message. It's what I call PD fanboys. Mm -hmm. right? the, the image I have in my mind is someone who is about to jump into a pool but they're afraid and they need encouragement to jump into the pool. But jumping into the pool is the worst mistake of their life because there's no water in the pool. I'm the guy at the bottom saying, hey, look with your eyes. There's no water. You're going to break both legs. And I'm surrounded by people who say, well, you can't say that. Maybe the water is just transparent. You don't know that. Let the guy try. It's his life. To me, it's just endangering the life of another human. And the thing with PD users and something you've realized after your interview, I think, is that even with someone who is intelligent, who is respectable, who knows what they're talking about, and who's not going to try to be dishonest, the very existence of a man who does steroids is encouragement enough. Even if the guy tells you, oh, be careful, there are drugs, they're dangerous. Yeah, but you have massive, massive biceps. You have gains I will never have. You have a body I will never have. And you show that to me. You flaunt that to me on a daily basis. The words coming out of your mouth mean nothing. Actions always speak louder than words. By you taking drugs, you are encouraging me to take drugs. And so any type and any time a person who does PDUs, even if they try to spread a message of awareness, is present, what they're doing is, again, they're promoting PDUs because they do it themselves. Who are you then to tell others, oh, don't do it you do it so this must mean that it's the way and you end up with a ton of young men who end up making that mistake afterwards yeah 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 um 
and 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 one thing actually I have to to compliment you on and and please never change this about yourself but I love the fact that you're so anti gear and you're not making netty or not like cool out videos like like to me this this is honestly like the uh, like the deepest hole of the anus of the internet like it's it's just I honestly can just not wrap my head around like how is this like acceptable like commonly that someone is doing a video for hundreds of thousands of people and is like for 20 minutes straight calling some random person a liar because because they're saying that they're natural and they look like it's suspicious like and the thing is probably a lot of them are on gear but a lot of like it, it, it could be natural, like uh, Matt does fitness, for example, now even did some drug test. It looks like he was indeed netty. Of course, like for a lot of people, it's not enough to get convinced. I don't know if he is. I don't even care. But like it's just um, when Derek Moore plays more days, did an interview with him. He really seemed like he was genuine and like the just reading the comments of like, oh my God, like he's just like lying into Derek's face. Like Derek must be thinking what a bullshit liar he is. Like there are some moments where I'm thinking to myself, like, man, like humanity is really ready to be just terminated. <laughs> but because like this is just beyond, uh, I don't know, crazy to me. But so anyway, it's great that you don't do that. Uh, do you, or maybe you plan to hope not? <laughs> well, first off, the entire thing with uh, Mad Dust Fitness, someone that I've heard about, but I've never watched any of his videos, is that you can't really say that the person sounds honest because something to learn about fake natties is that they are extremely good at lying. Right? Some of them lie for years and years and years on a daily basis with their audience with a smile on their face. It's like a second nature. I've actually come to believe that some of them have auto-persuaded themselves that they're natural. <laughs> Meaning that they do drugs, they inject, but like on a psychological level, they think, no, no, I'm natural because they repeat it so much. So that's a possibility. After that, I don't know and I don't care. Because you're right, 90 on videos are horrible. And I would actually go as far as to say that they are worse than fake 90s. Actually, I'm preparing a video on the topic because I've been around, I was there when the first Nadia or Not video was released and when it got popular, I saw every single YouTuber that actually adopted that, that trend of Nadia or Not videos. And the only thing I can say is that every single time it gets worse and it's just destroying the platform as a whole because it spreads mistrust. Because of course, these guys are not going to make Nadia or Not about pro bodybuilders. They make it about guys that are on the brink that could mm. be natural or could not be natural. And what it does is that it lowers natural standards to the point that nowadays, and it's okay in the US, but in countries like France, for example, it's horrendous. Anyone with a semblance of muscularity is deemed unnatural. This is the reason why I don't make videos for French people. And I mean, in the US, uh, YouTube fitness is because my physique in France is impossible. People would call me a fake natty. People would, like, would be like, stop lying to us, you're on a ton of drugs. Because six feet two ten, in their understanding of the word, it's it's impossible. It's not something that is achievable naturally. So I won't even bother. But they got manipulated into thinking that by a ton of YouTubers who have artificially lowered the bar. And it's the same with these guys who make Canadian or not. Derek has made videos about guys who I know are natural, meaning that I have mm. a good enough eye to know that this is a person that is not cheating. And yet ton of people in the comments were like oh i'm finally seeing the truth it's impossible to look like this naturally what it does is that this person is going to have a garbage physique forever now because they it's like a glass ceiling 
If you think your standards are here, you're never going to try to break through. So by trying to defend naturals on this platform, going on a crusade, on a fake crusade, with all of these nadir or not, what they do is they actually hurt natural lifting a ton. And it's incredible to see that most of the time, the people who make nadir or not videos are on drugs themselves. So who are you to speak about another man's nadi status? It's They don't have a dog in the game. The only thing they want is the views. What it does to people who watch, they don't care. Um, I, I completely agree. And uh, I, I loved your um, breakdowns of these case studies on nettyornot.com. It's really weird, but I think you're the, the only and first person who criticized that website heavily. Because... I always thought to myself, even, even as a naive, like new lifter back in like 2015 or so that this website is freaking toxic. Like mm-hmm. I've never seen such a negative tone to website. It's like these people that I'm sure, you know, some people in your personal life that are just, anytime you talk to them for like 10 minutes, you feel worse after that. They're just so negative. Like this website is like that. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Like um, you said it in one of your videos, like if you think that this is only achievable by using drugs, then what's the point of lifting? Like, seriously. So, you know, and the Nadia Arnold guy is a perfect example of it because to me, he is the representation of that person who lifts, but who's convinced themselves that nothing is possible. It's a nihilistic lifter, per se. And therefore, of course, he doesn't achieve much. It cracks me up because the guy has been lifting longer than me. And I think he has similar stats in terms of height. He's around my height. But I think he peaked at like 160. And there's pictures of him where he just looks like a guy who swims on the weekends. And to me, it shows one thing. It's not that you have bad genetics. It's not that that you're virtuous because you don't do steroids. You just don't train hard. That's the reason why you don't have a good physique. And so every time I read one of his articles, I have the the urge to just make a video about it because it is like a catalog of all of the excuses that people are going to tell themselves to justify why they have no results. Yeah, yeah, and that that is a perfect. But for actually, is it known who that guy is? Like, I know a truth seeker is his. Like, we, we know his alias, and I'm sure that it would be extremely easy to dox him because I'm not sure that he mm. actually takes care of hiding his identity. There's no real real point in that, but we know that he. It's not his first rodeo, meaning that he was present on forums. He is act, actually actively present on YouTube, and he spreads mm. the black pill. So he's the type of person who tries to demotivate other men as much as possible. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty clear to see. Um, and that, that's a good segue into the other big uh, part of you, who, who you are and what you stand for. And that's um, so the anti-black pill uh, movement. What's the opposite of that? Red pill? Is that? Uh... So it's, if we're going to dive into the very interesting wood of the pills, you <laughs> have the blue pill, which is mm-hmm. seeing the wood for the illusion. It is. You have the red pill, which is supposedly lifting the veil of the illusion and seeing things for what they are. You have the black pill, which is the idea that once you lift the veil, the only thing available to you is doom and the sad reality of life. Mm. And then you have the white pill, which states that once you lift the veil, what you see is hope. Oh, okay. So those would be... So which one is the best one? What are are you standing for? Well, white pill all the way, of course. But uh, the issue with the white pill is that you have to make sure you don't fall into fake positivity, which too many people end up in, where because they are so intent on uplifting people and motivating people that they end up lying. And the problem is that if someone catches you in a lie and they realize, oh, this person has, try- has been trying to uplift me based on, th- on falsehood, now you're going to blackpill that people all the way. So it's a, it's a very fine line to walk. 
Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's sort of uh, what I want to get into. Um, I so so about the genetic stuff. Like, so you are you're a white pillar, and, and I would say yes. Um, Nettyornot.com is probably like the 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 perfect example of like that. That's black pill at its strongest. Um, now I would say that I. You may have considered me a, a black pillar if you, I don't know if you've seen anything from me before, but if, if you have, um, or if you would have, then then probably that's what you would have thought. Um, and, and I would say that you changed my mind um, on this. Like I, I, I do think, but, but actually I'm going to ask you. So let's say I am someone who believes strongly in like genetic limits. I, let's say I, I would think that most people will not look like you if they put uh, put in the same amount of work. Um, and let's assume that uh, I, I'm right about that um, in this alternate universe. Do you think in that case, even I should say that that's not the case and that would be the right thing to do? Or what do you think? So it would be projecting on my part to tell you to do that because I think that if that's your belief, then it would be strange and also dishonest for you to project anything else. The reason why I tell people that I don't believe in genetic limits is because I truly don't. It's not a manipulation on my part. It's not, oh, I know that there is a limit, but if I lie to people, I'm going to convince them that they can still achieve things and therefore we're going to get results. And yet at the end of the day, that's exactly what I do. Meaning that I'm lying without lying. When you engage in massive white pill, and you tell people, hey, so just stop worrying about genetic limitations and just train as much as possible. What you do is that you remove limiters because let's say that we enter this alternate universe of yours and you're correct, which by the way, scientifically speaking, you are. Like on, on, a, on a rigorous basis, you are. There is such a thing as a limit. The problem is that we do not have the ability to say when this limit occurs. So most of the time, when someone says, I have reached my limit, they have reached their psychological limits, not biological. Mm -hmm. This means that most people are stopped here by the psychological. If you can remove that, this means that you're going to have more people going to get above that and get a chance to reach the biological if they even manage to get there, which most people will never get there, I think. This is the plan, and this is the idea. It's to get people to not stop. And it's to get people to believe in themselves to the point that they will be able to achieve things that they were they never thought was possible. The reason why I'm a big believer in that is because it's something that I did to myself. I was lucky enough to not be on YouTube Fitness when I got started, so I didn't have any standards, and I had no one to tell me, oh, this is not possible. The only people I had who told me that were my family members, but they knew nothing. So when a family, my uncle, who has a beer belly, tells me, oh, you'll never be big, and I was 16, I thought, well, you know nothing, and I'm going to show to you. And once I got to a place in my life where I entered YouTube fitness and I started to listen to these black pillars, I thought to myself, okay, you sound just like my uncle. And he was wrong. So you're wrong as well. And I just continued on. But I know for a fact that if I got bombarded with that type of negative message when I was a young man, chances are I would have been slowed down because the issue with the black pill is that for the most part, it's based on reality. A lot of black pill YouTubers will tell you this is wrong. Reality. Don't try to hide from reality. And they're correct, but reality is a perspective. If you train and you get stopped and you think that's my limit, that's a perspective. 
from my perspective, this is not what's occurring. You did that to yourself. And the fact that I managed to convince someone like you, because yes, I've, I've checked your, your, your videos and I've seen that mm. you have these limitations in you. The fact that I managed to push these limitations even a tiny bit upwards means and shows that this works, this method works. And therefore, that's why I'm going to stick to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I... Unfortunately, I also got to see like some people are just so, um, some of them are good people for the most part. They have good information, uh, but maybe because they don't have good genetics themselves. Like, like some of them are some like real, like legitimate hard gainers. Uh, in some cases, I would not be surprised if this is some like actual non-responder, which they talk about in studies. It's one of those. And it almost seems sometimes like they are taking some weird pleasure from like, uh, just slowly sinking in the knife and telling people like, like you're never going to amount to anything. And it's like, it, it's very off-putting to me. Um, and at the same time, like I, I do, I can recall certain things from my own life where I was sort of running on pure delusion even. And yeah, maybe I still haven't gotten like super, super far, like on an absolute scale, but compared to where, realistically now I would have thought I could have gotten like way further than that. Um, and I never would have even attempted if I don't have that mindset. So I think, um, yeah, maybe if I, it's, it's almost better, even if I don't necessarily think that, um, tell people that they can, they can do anything. I don't know. Uh, but, but certainly, certainly not emphasizing just for the fun of it. Like, uh, oh, like genetic limits, this genetic limits, that it doesn't really do that much favor. I don't know. Yeah, because it's a, it's a limit, right? This is not the type of message we should be spreading. And it's something you, you just pointed out. What does it say about a man if he spends his entire life convincing others they won't be able to achieve anything? To me, this is psychological progression one-on-one. -on -one. These are people who sunk and instead of trying to swim upwards, they're trying to grab other people's ankles and drag them down with them. Yeah. This is the black pill. And, you know, I know it's not very well received in Western society and civilization to judge people on outward appearances. But I think that if you take a good look at most of these black pill channels, you see the guy who makes the videos, you cannot think to yourself, okay, this is a man worth respecting. Most of them are unkept, overweight, they're not taking care of their bodies, and they're going to sit there and tell you, oh, it's... It's just unavoidable. It's my fate. I don't believe that for a second. I've known people who had who were dealt horrible hands at birth, missing limbs, terrible diseases, cancers from birth, and these guys made it. So what exactly is your excuse? That you're a heart gainer, an ectomorph? I don't buy that. And to me, if you can remind people that this is not the way to live and that this level of patheticness is not acceptable as a man, you can jolt something in them. I think that most men, and it's something that, that I like to do, it's fun to do, and it's also very effective. Most men, if you attack their ego, and you're like, hey, are you that pathetic? They wake up to reality. Because the black pill, as you said, is, is very pleasing. It's a, it's almost a, a masochist, masochistic tendency to just make the self smaller and feel bad about yourself in a group of other people that justify that and say, well, it's not really your fault. All of that is taking responsibility away from people. My favorite game is to take that responsibility, ball it up, and throw it in their chest and say, no, no, this is yours. You did that to yourself. Are you going to man up and try to swim upwards, or are you just going to give up? A lot of men respond to that. We don't like being reminded that we suck. So it's a very nice idea to do that because, to go back to the ideas of the pills, 
The black pill in reality is a blue pill. It's people who think they see reality for what it is, mm. but they also have a veil. They also lie to themselves because they refuse to admit that their situation is their own fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing, not not to spend too much time on this because uh, I, I want to move on to some other stuff. Uh, don't want to keep you here all day. But um, one thing that reminded me of this is um, I listened to a podcast about IQ. And it, it's a guy who wrote a, a book about the science of intelligence. And basically, like, it was a two hour long podcast where he went on explaining how now we can conclusively say that it's basically all, all genetics and that we can do nothing about uh, someone's IQ and, and there is nothing you can do with education. It basically just like allows you to catch up to what you could have done anyway, but like twin studies, this twin studies that. And I was, I was thinking that, um, man, like, okay, cool. But like, is, is there like, like, what's the point? Like what me, the listener, what should I do with this information? So like, congratulations you managed to convince me that if i'm dumb i'm always gonna be dumb like it's like did anything change or is it just for the smart ones that they can like jack off to themselves now or it's so it's kind of the same thing so yeah yeah um now uh let, let's let's talk a bit about lifting because people are gonna lynch me if uh, or you gotta <laughs> jump I w- i'm just going to finish on this because you have a keen yes. eye for observations when it comes to psychology i think You've pointed out something interesting. The black pill is a non-response because mm. it never provides any answer. It's always the death of debates and always the death of conversation. It tries to say, okay, this is the truth and this is it. We're not going to discuss it anymore. It's the same with that guy who was speaking about IQ. What is his conclusion? People are either born smart or born dumb. That's it. There's nothing you can do about it. This is never the way to go. Even if it were to be again in this alternate universe, scientifically correct it's still incorrect because it's unpractical so we don't have any use for that and we have to throw it away i'm not going to spend too much time on it we're going to jump to lifting the twin study is something i'm going to make a video about because it's a faulty study it's something that if you apply logic to you can sense and understand that there's a problem with it and i'm going to wrap up by saying that iq is a very poor measure of intelligence it measures only a tiny portion of intelligence which is logics and memory which is not the most important things emotive intelligence the ability to interact with the environment survival skills all of that is not tested and therefore even if you have a very high iq it doesn't mean that you're intelligent you're intelligent in certain aspects of life it doesn't mean much so be careful and worry of these types because as you said most of them just do that to jack up they say oh i'm so intelligent and i was born like this and it's it's an unavoidable difference it's projection these people have no confidence and they're trying to feel better by putting other people down yeah yeah it's um i'm i'm okay i'm very excited about the video of yours um so so this is a topic that that you researched and you're interested in the intelligence and iq topic yeah because the the black pill in general is something that i i want to make videos about that a series that is going to be dedicated to debunking their ideas because a ton of what they do is they take your topic they make a 40 minute video and they say okay this is conclusive i'm going to come in and say no nothing is conclusive and your argument is fallacious so this is going to be something on the channel okay awesome um looking forward to it very much um uh so yeah so let's let's talk about lifting um first first question there is um you kind of mentioned it here and there but uh were there like some key influences for you that taught you about lifting or it's just like 
from everywhere and self-experimentation. And it's just like a very gradual process for you, how you got to being as knowledgeable as, as you are. Well, it was for sure a very long process. It took me more than 15 years, but there are some names in particular that were of great importance to me. And paradoxically, most of these names were not bodybuilders. The vast majority of people I learned from in lifting were powerlifters. So mm -hmm. guys like Alan Thor, Candido, uh, Omar Izov, all guys that, in my opinion, at the start of YouTube Fitness, gave the best advice, both for muscle building and for strength development. And so most of the information I got, I got from them first, and then I refined it, and I fine-tuned it for bodybuilding's sake only. And it's been now a few years where I'm mostly working my own path, and I'm trying to work with my own ideas. But there are still names that I check out once in a while, the channels that make good content that I can always learn from, because you are never done learning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I actually think that, um, I don't know if you've seen some content of mine on lifting, but I actually think that we, we have quite a lot in common with how we think about uh, things. We use different names and different terminology. Like, um, so actually, let, let, let's, this is what I managed to grasp from you and then correct me where I'm wrong. So you're a fan of uh, body part splits, but uh, you don't go about it uh, the bro split way. You go about it, what you call it, uh, gen a gentleman's sp split, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know, like a gentleman, like it, it almost has like a porn movie-esque vibe <laughs> for, for me. Like I just imagine some, some guy in a suit, like going up to the chick and like, uh, I don't know. So, but, but yeah, so, but, but it's a cool mocking of the, so it's not bro, it's a gentleman, like it's a, an upgrade. And, um, and actually, if I'm understanding you correctly, the way you go about that is what I would call a hybrid split, which is like, so it's not full body because you're not training your full body in every session. It's more so that you're just not putting limitations on yourself. So a lot of my training days look something like chest, lats, uh, triceps, I almost said calves, but I don't train calves anymore, uh, hamstrings. So it's like, okay, but quads, I didn't train, whatever side delt isolation I didn't do. And, and that's kind of how you go about it as well, right? Yeah, but, but I follow a template that is based upon an upper-lower. So, for example, the day you described wouldn't be possible as a gentleman split because you worked chest and arm strings. So you have a big muscle group for the lower body and a big muscle group for the upper body. And mm -hmm. that's not synergistic. So me, for example, I would take away the arm strings. If you're going to work chest, this means that it's going to be an upper-body day according to the template. And then the freedom comes in the fact that you can still throw in some smaller muscle groups for the lower body. So, for example, calves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, often, often the way I actually go about it, um, and let me know what you don't like about that setup, is um, upper body push, lower body pull, which is not really a thing, but like, uh, so hamstrings and upper body push, and then um, vice versa, so quads and then pulling exercises. Um, wh where do you think that is uh, faulty, for example? Well, one, because it looks like you're following a full body template, but you cut down certain body parts. And the issue is that these are body parts that would work well with one another. So for mm -hmm. example, if you were to do armstrings and quads, 
Most knee flexions recruit the arm strings. Most hip hinges recruit the quads. Now you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You want to work the arm strings, but you don't want to recruit the quads. So what lifts are you going to do? You're going to be mostly stuck with isolation, like leg curls, for example. That's not a bad thing, but it means that you could have had a compound movement instead if the template was was scheduled differently. And for me, when I speak about splits, the big problem I have with bro splits is that they lack synergy. Because of course you can't, a tricep day is not synergistic with anything, it's only one muscle group. So I always work with muscles that pair well with one another and that are going to save as much time as possible. And in the case of your template, I think that this is where it's lacking. So, so just so I understand you correctly, is that because like, let's say squat patterns and leg curls would go with one another on the same yeah. day? I, I think that it would be a good idea. Now, it doesn't mean that you will always do a 50-50 knee flexion hip hinge. Most of the time, what I do is a 70-30 split where you'll have a day who is skewed towards knee flexion for quad development, mm -hmm. another one for hip hinge. But the reason why I like to do that and to have these compounds is because it allows for a higher frequency to hit legs heavy, which to me is the solution. Because I think that, and that's again, the big problem with bro splits, training legs once a week is not a good idea. But also trying to split the leg, which is such a big muscle group into like, for example, just armstring on that day is also not, good, not a good idea because you're not maximizing recovery. Whereas if you hit quads and armstrings and you wait 48 hours, the two muscle groups recovered at the same time. Whereas if you only hit the, the armstrings, now the quads are not hit, 48 hours where they don't recover, so you're wasting hypertrophy time. Yeah, and I guess then you would um, take the like hinges as an exception to that because I, I guess you, from what I've heard, you don't like to put those on the same day. I do, but if you're going to put them on the same day, you have to be smart about it. So you might have a day that is going to be entirely focused on hinges, for example. Something I never prescribe is doing heavy squats and heavy deadlifts mm -hmm. because now it's too much. Right now you're going too far down the other direction. So maybe heavy squats and then you find a, knee uh, a hip hinge that is going to be easier for you to do. Like leg curls, for example, would be a great idea. Then you'll have another day where you train the lower body where you'll enter with a heavy hip hinge and maybe an accessory knee flexion. Accessory in the sense that it's going to be with more reps and it's going to be less intense. Right, right. Um, now, well, actually, let's get... So I, I want to get back a little bit later on the um, synergy and supersetting because... Um, This is actually something I'm becoming more and more interested in, and I would love to pick your brain on that a little bit. But let's talk about uh, programming a bit, because uh, as you like to point out, that's, that's your everything in training. So you talk about evolving rep ranges, evolving sets, um, and, and then periodization as well. So if I understood it correctly... It took a few videos to, to to grasp what you meant by that. But evolving rep ranges are sort of the sort of similar to what a lot of people call uh, like double progression in the industry. Is that so? I have a ton of people who tell me that, and unless I misunderstand double progression, most types of double progression are based off of evolving rep ranges, but not all evolving rep ranges are double progression. From mm. what I understand, and maybe correct me because I might not understand the semantics, double progression would be, for example, doing an easy bar curl and a dumbbell curl for the bicep. So the two lifts are going to target the bicep and they're going to have different rep ranges. But the two are still going to grow the biceps or they're going to grow synergistically together because this carry over. Is that it? No, no. I, I think um, I th so people use it differently. Usually double progression just means that. Uh, so let's say you have three sets for the easy bar curl. Um, and it's from the, the way I heard, it's always just one exercise that we are talking about. 
And so, so either I heard it in two ways, either that you have, uh, let's say eight to 12 is your rep range. And, and then, okay. So like 12 in the first one or 11, whatever you get, if in the second one, you get eight, uh, or, or nine and the third one, you got eight, then, okay. You have 11, nine, eight, all of them were in that eight to 12 rep range. So cool. You can add weight. That's one way. And the other one would be, um, basically progressing each set separately. So let's say it would be 12 in the first, um, in, in the first, uh, set and then 10 in the second eight in the third, and then you progress them like completely independently. So people do it differently, but that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would have some issues with it then because with the first option you described, for me, I always tell people just because you can hate reps with the range doesn't mean that you're supposed to go up in weight because that very soon becomes unrealistic. If you do a 10 to 6 on incline press and you get 9, 8, 7, 6, okay, <laughs> they're all within the range. But if you jump up in weight, what are the chances you're going to be able to hit that again within the range? Chances are you're going to fail. So for me, I always tell people, have an idea of a higher number that you want to hit. So you do a 10 to 6. If you can get 10, 10, 9, 8, chances are you can go up in weight and you'll be able to still stay within the range. That is, if you stick with the same range, because an evolving rep range can evolve within the rep range and as a progression scheme. You could do a 10 to 6, go up in weight and do a 3 to 5, and then move and then walk towards a 10 to 6 again. This means that the volume and intensity shrinks a ton and it's very complex to handle, but it's a, it's a valid way to do it. And then the second option you described, every single set evolving independently to one another, it sort of defeats the purpose because when you do evolving uh, rep ranges, the idea is that you have your top range, so 12, and your bottom range, so 8. And the goal is that every single set is done with the same weight and it's all together. Right? The idea is that all the sets are done with the, within that range. So that's the important part. If you can manage to get the numbers that you want within the range, then you go up in weight. If you start reading each set independently, it's like a drop set in idea, but not in practice. So this is the reason why I wanted to start talking about evolving rep ranges mm -hmm. and not double progression is because it's a very simple concept in truth, in practice, but we have a tendency on YouTube Fitness to use 15 names for the same thing. And before we know it, we have 15 different things because these concepts shift and adapt with time. So I, for me, on the channel, when I talk about evolving rep ranges, that's what I'm talking about. Right, right. And um, it, it, that it's actually good that you brought this up um, because that was one thing that was a little bit vague, maybe intentionally, because it, it is just like case by case and it changes, but um, like basically what green lights you're looking for um, when upping the weight. So, because what I heard from your videos is like when you think it's reasonable, but yeah, like, you know, if you have like six to 10, like, yeah, if, if you get like seven, six, six, then I mean, I mean, technically you're in within the six to 10 yeah. range, but, but should you up the weight? I mean, probably not. So, so like, are there certain like triggers or green lights that uh, you can recommend to people or? So the thing with evolving rep ranges and the reason why it confuses some novices is that they are very instinctive and they're not mechanical. A very mechanical rep range would be three to five, uh, three by five. A three by five is mechanical. You do three sets, you get five reps. If you get that, you go up in weight. There's no room for discussion that's the way it is 
that's not a bad rep range. But the issue is that this eventually stalls, right? It's impossible to do a three by five forever and keep adding weight every single time. It's it's not realistic. Yeah. The problem is when it falls. Because once you plateau once and everyone who has done five by five and three by five knows it, now you've entered the hell of plateaus of mm-hmm. managing to get there next week, but I, I barely got it this week. Like I barely got my three by five. How am I supposed to get it next week? It's not possible. I can't adapt to that rate. And this is when you move to evolving references and you do a three by three to five or three by five to seven. You widen the range a tiny bit so that it allows you to send back more because you're going to retake more of the rep range, but you're still going to get that extra rep at the end that is going to make all of the difference. And I think that for me, this method makes it much less frustrating because now you don't feel like you're plateauing anymore. You're still progressing within the rep range. You might not be progressing in weight. This also means that it's slower because you're going to retake weights. By default, the rep range is bigger. So a three by five is three by five, you hit it, go up in weight. Three by five to seven, you might get six, five, five. You're not mm. ready to jump yet. Next week, you're going to retake the same weight, but you'll get a rep PR. So you're going to spend two, maybe two two sessions, three sessions with the same weight and then go up. But at the end of the day, it's something that I found. If you're close to failure, whether you get that five rep on the five one is very grindy or you get six where you still have some in the tank, you're still close enough to failure that this is going to work, right? There's going to be a response, an hypertrophic response. And for bodybuilding, I think this is the way. It's always better to accumulate reps very close to failure, very close to top intensity with a semblance of progression rather than doing something that has you go back, plateau all the time, frustrates you, maybe injures you, that allows for for faster progression because at the end of the day, consistency works better. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Um, so in in your training, or I mean, or let, let's take a an alternate universe where you're like, uh, let's say two years uh, younger in training age um, and in general age as well. But like you look for some improvement in every session, basically. So if you like, like when would you consider something a plateau in your own training? So first off, I think that plateaus are based on your goals. For example, my pressing movements for the chest have been plateauing for a year and a half. I've made zero progress whatsoever in terms of weight on the bar, but I'm fine with that. I don't consider that a plateau because I don't want to grow my chest. My chest is big enough as is. If it went to grow bigger, it would throw my entire physique out of balance. It's already a little bit too big for my taste. So I send back on it. And therefore, if I plateau, it's actually a good sign. It's that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm maintaining my level of strength and muscularity. And I can put that effort towards other muscles that I want to grow. Now, let's take the long of the tricep, for example. That's a muscle I want to grow. So it has to progress mm-hmm. in terms of total tonnage. So also in terms of weight on the bar and volume. I had a progression that is some resembles something like 20 pounds on school crushers, 25 pounds on French presses, and something like seven or eight reps on all types of extensions behind the head uh, 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 on the span of a year. That's progression. It's not a progression that happens training to training. I can tell you that for a fact. Mm-hmm. I've been using yeah. the same weight for school crushers for something like two months. But I know that what I'm doing is right now I'm accumulating volume, very intense volume. And once I go up in weight, that is going to be an immediate 10 pound PR for my school crushers because my muscles are going to be prepared to handle that. So I compound everything and I look at it 
as a broader picture. I think that it's a mistake to try to seek and chase PR every session because at some point for bodybuilding, it simply is not sustainable. You're going to burn out. You have to look at what you've done in the past six months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely longer term trends are ultimately what matter. And um, I also think that it's it's very like one thing I, I like to remind people of is there's a difference between I'm not progressing and I'm not progressing fast enough so I can put five pounds on the bar from one session to the next. Um, I, I actually often think about like whether these periodization models that we have is that actually is that actually what's helping or it's just something to distract you while you're waiting out your progress basically so that you don't feel like just doing the same thing and nothing is happening um uh, and I also think that if we just gave people more hacks to microload like really microload our implements that would almost help as much as these cool models uh, what what do you think about that i think you have a way to look at things that some people would overcomplicate and you say them in very simple terms and it makes a ton of sense immediately. Mm. A lot of the methods that we push onto people are just means to make them wait. It's just a way to make sure that they are patient. So yeah. once you cannot do this insane linear progression anymore that most novices are going to experience because your, your muscles are blowing up in size and strength, you're going to enter a mode where that slows down almost immediately. And most novices find it so frustrating they quit. Because they think, oh, it's a plateau. It's not a plateau. It's just that you've been driving a thousand miles an hour and now you're going a hundred. So of course, your perspective tells you I'm not going anywhere. I'm going very slow. You're still moving forward. It's so important to keep going. So what you do, you find methods to get people to still lift. That's what evolving weapons are. That way, a lifter can stick with the same weight, a weight that is creating a hypertrophic response. But the frustration of thinking, oh, I'm not adding weight to the bar is going away. I think humans are extremely obsessed by numbers, mm -hmm. by nature and by biology. It's something that we are always looking at because the number of calories was always important for survival, the amount of resources you have, the number on your bank, all of that makes or breaks us. So once you enter lifting, you take that demon with you and you start obsessing over numbers. And that obsession over numbers means that if you're not having a PR, if you're not getting that big jump on bench, you're going to think, I'm not going anywhere. That's not true. As you've described, it's not that you're not going anywhere. You're just not perceiving the progression because it's not in your face. It's not plates on the bar. It's not a plus five on the bench but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. So big thing, and I think that every very advanced natural bodybuilder understands that at some point, a big thing is to just keep training. So find any reason you can to keep training intensely and you will see progression because you will teach yourself patience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, definitely. It's, um, the, the numbers thing is interesting. I... I remember watching, uh, I actually watched it twice, your video on uh, why strength standards are stupid. And I was like, ooh, like, like, like this guy would not like me because <laughs> one, one of my mo most popular videos was on strength standards. But I completely agree with you. Like uh, it's, it's strength, like getting strong and chasing these things does not guarantee you anything. And, and it's absolutely true. Um, I think it's... Um, the reason it can be beneficial for some people is because in hypertrophy, there's just so much mystery and things happening like under the hood and you have to run on faith a lot. And at, at least the numbers, like, like you're seeing your numbers going up, like it's like a carrot in front of you. Um, 
And some people, I mean, probably you're not prone to this anymore, or maybe you are, but like so many people are prone to program hopping, uh, just, you know, one shiny toy here, one shiny toy here. They are doing something different each week. And that I think you could get away with it. I could get away with that because whatever you would be program hopping to would not be some completely asinine thing. But when you're in the beginning of this, you just have no, no way of really knowing whether what you're doing makes sense. Um, and then, you know, if a big, if I say I'm trusting the process, like, okay, like I can back it up because like things have worked and I think I know what I'm doing. But like, if I said that in 2015, I'm trusting the process, like, oh, no, dude, like, don't, don't trust that process. <laughs> like what you're doing doesn't make any sense. So, uh, but, but yeah, it can be taken too far. And I think that's where the obsession on numbers comes from. We just want to measure something at least, because it's really hard in hypertrophy. Yeah, we want proof. And it's, again, you said it, hypertrophy is, is a game of faith. Because at some point, it's like, I'm doing something, but I'm not seeing any results. Right. For me, for example, if I were to assess the effectiveness of my training based on the way I look, I would have stopped lifting a long time ago <laughs> because my body looks the same it did a year ago. Like, if, uh, like if I just look at myself like for a second, I'm like, well, why did you spend a thousand hours in the gym? Nothing changed. But if I actually take the time, I look at the numbers, now it makes a ton of sense. A ton of the numbers have increased. So I'm actually doing something right. It's the obsession on numbers that's the issue because you end up thinking, okay, I'm looking at the numbers for hypertrophy to prove to myself that what I'm doing is working. But before you know it, the only thing you obsess over is the numbers. And that's when strength standards become stupid. It's because now you're chasing strength. You're not chasing strength as a byproduct of hypertrophy. You're doing the exact opposite. And it's why so many people are lost. I know so many guys who say, well, I got all of these lifts, but I still don't look like I lift. And it's mm. that's, that's for that very same reason. They lost sight of what they truly wanted. And at some point, it's, it's the truth that you're going to have to have faith in the process. You're going to have to accept the idea that you're doing something that might not work, right? You don't always get to know that things are going to work. Sometimes you have to try. And as you've described, sometimes the process you followed was stupid. But the good thing is that it doesn't matter. Now you're going to change and adapt. Just recently, I modified my program. I revamped it 100%, a program that I thought two years ago was perfect. It wasn't perfect. Now I think that the problem that I'm following is perfect. Is it? No. In two years, I'm going to change again. So it's it's a constant game of inches and of trying to revamp the way we do things. But I think it's also what keeps it interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I saw that video. Um, saw the description. It's it's interesting how you structure uh, your your splits and your training days. Um, it was a bit cryptic with all the nos uh, in there. <laughs> um, so. So let's talk a bit about the synergy thing that you mentioned. Um, so I'm wondering if you have some, some like uh, things that are just like solidified in your head. Like, for example, when I look at, I start putting together a split um, usually. Uh, so I gave the push, upper push, lower pull thing, but that's not always how I do things. Often if I see a squat, I will immediately put a lat curl there which, okay, now it seems like I'm bullshitting, but it's actually true. <laughs> uh, uh, so if I see that, then I will do that. If I see a straight arm pull down or pull over or whatever, then okay, a bicep curl would go well with that. So like I have these like little triggers in my head, pull up or chin up, overhead press, like, like those things go together. Yeah. Um, do you have some things like that? You have some unconventional ones that uh, made me think like a triceps work and overhead press. I see that you put together, yeah. for example. 
So I'm, I'm just like you. I think that we build automatisms when we program. And I end up with certain lives where I make a new program. I'm like, just like you described, okay, chin-ups, what, what goes well with a chin-up? A vertical push. So overhead press. It just it clicks because the lives go well together. Bench press, what can I superset that with? Dumbbell rows. It just makes sense. These are muscles that are completely different. They're antagonistic. It's going to work well. Then you have the weird ones and the weird ones came because i pushed away the, the the dogma on youtube fitness a lot of the time you have lifts that look like they're working similar muscles so you think okay never superset that but when you actually try you realize oh wow it, these muscles are not the same so something mm. i actually encourage people to do is try to superset a press with a long head extension and you will find that you don't lose performance because these are not the same muscles. If you do lose performance, it means that you're not doing your long head exercises properly and you mm. use too much tricep and shoulders. So that's actually a good way to know if you're actually isolating the long head of the tricep or not. But it is logical that the two won't actually interfere with one another. Then you have the ones that are neither logical nor cryptic or weird. So for example, abs. Every time there is a space for a superset, you can do, you can put abs. It's almost impossible mm. to go wrong with that. The only moments where it's bad is if you do a really heavy compound movement that requires a ton of, of spinal rigidity, and then you do abs on top of that, you might fatigue the core, so it's not a good idea. But any type of press, any types of isolation for the upper body, you cannot go wrong with doing some abs. Same with traps, same with forearms, same with calves, all of that with the neck. There are always a space in the program for supersets with these muscle groups. And these tend to be the most ignored muscle groups because people insist on trying to find them a spot like they would for like quads, for example. Mm -hmm. So they want that, that, that pristine opening in the program, but it doesn't exist. So they don't program the lift. They skip it and you end up with a generation of lifters who think that they have bad genetics. I see that so many times where you have guys who have a poorly defined six pack. And they say, oh, it's genetics. Well, no, it's not genetics. You, you do 300 sets of quads a year and zero of abs. It only makes sense that your abs are not growing. They're muscles. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, clients ask me all the time whether I think it's worth training the abs. And I, I always say, uh, well, so I, like two different responses that I give, but one of them is it like if you want more visible abs that are that are um, more apparent at higher body fat percentages even then i mean it's, it's, it's definitely not going to be more possible by not training them so it's it's, it's kind of like um, and it's like potentially high reward low risk relatively low effort as well yeah because so. you'll, you'll never get injured doing a set of crunches unless you're really a complete idiot it's super set. <clears throat> it's super set. It doesn't take any time. It's low impact because it doesn't damage the recovery of the other muscles. So the, the real question is, why wouldn't you work your abs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, when it comes to like arranging your, um, like ordering your training days and, and putting them somewhere uh, across the week, do you so from what i'm understanding you prefer to have like 48 hours at least between two muscle groups or the same muscle group um it, do you ever put like back-to-back um, -back days for for a muscle group yes if it's a muscle group that's highly endurance and i know that i'm going to only slightly tap into its recovery the first day i can so for example i could be doing heavy dumbbell rows on a monday and then on a tuesday i'll do pull-ups 
that's possible. Mm-hmm. Because one, it's not the same lift and not the same angle, so it's not the same muscle fiber damage. And on top of that, in this situation, you come to understand that some, some muscle groups respond well to that. So for some of them, trying to kill them, like on one day, and then take five days off is going to move very well. But some, if you just do it a tiny bit each day, it's better. And on top of that, you won't have that adverse reaction, psychological reaction of thinking, oh, I'm in pain, I have, I have DOMS, now I have to rest. So the arm strength is a good example as well. The way I train the legs is the arm strings get hit every 48 hours heavy. Like that, that, is, that is always the case because it's an extremely endurance muscle group. The quads only every 100 hours because I think that they're slightly less endurance and also they are very, uh, they, are, they depend greatly on the knee joint Whereas mm-hmm. with the arm string, it's mostly your hips, it's your pelvis, it's your lower back. So all of that comes into play as well. But that's why I say that absolute rules are usually a bad idea. So saying, okay, every 48 hours I hit the muscle, now that's just a restriction. Yeah. You could hit it every 24 hours if you, if you just split the volume in two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, are you... Actually, since you mentioned the back, so this is a totally selfish question because I'm, I'm in project, uh, try to grow my back uh, for the past like eight months or so. And I know that for you, like pull-ups and um, pullovers have been a big game changer. But even before that, to be fair, like, so there's like that one feature of your back, uh, which like a lot of lifter have, but a lot of them don't have it, which like I'm just dying to get for myself. And I'm not sure if it's really like lower lats or is it like lumbar lats or partly erectors, partly lumbar lats. But, you know, like um, it's like this triangle shape, those two things on the side on like mm-hmm. the lower. Um, I just always call them those things on the back. <laughs> um, so for most of your training career, would you say that you did like a relatively even split of horizontal and vertical pulls or was it like more so one or the other? I was uh, I was uh, a bro. I, I was unknowingly a bro, being that most of my training was curls and it was push-ups and bench press. So <laughs> the front of my body was super developed. And it's funny because when I still was just a beginner, I had a pretty good-looking front. But then the second I turned around, I had stick legs and I had no back. My back was like a surfboard. There was no width. It was flat. There was no mm-hmm. 3D pop or nothing because I barely trained it. And I know that nowadays you have people who say do twice the volume for the upper back. Again, that's an absolute, it's an absolute. So it's not a good idea to do that. But generally the upper back can take a ton of punishment. And so actually I think that if we can get novices to start training it intense when they start, we could see some monsters down the line because when I see the response I got, when I started to treat the upper back seriously, and I see the definition I have now, certain muscles that I thought didn't even exist. I'm thinking, okay, now I'm on the right path. And that path is clearly to destroy the upper back as much as possible. So it's the direction I'm taking right now. And yet, still to this day, when I checked my physique recently, I realized that my front is still ahead because I spent so many years training only the front. So it's also a message to lifters, never neglect a muscle group because then you're going to accumulate a depth. And when you have to pay off that depth, it takes a very long time. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, I'm, I'm also an example. I mean, I'm kind of like you, if you're saying that, I mean, you have a better back than I do, um, I think, but you are kind of, we're kind of in the same boat. Like my front is way more developed than, than my rear. And, uh, 
yeah, like I always enjoy training my chest. Um, I didn't train arms as dedicatedly as, as you did. Um, and that's another thing, by the way, like I completely agree with you and Alpha Destiny and, and Jeffrey, like, yeah, an arm day, it's, it's talked down upon these days. But if you don't have arms to your liking, I mean, like, like what are you going to do? Like not train your arms more because science says that it shouldn't work or like, like what, what's your excuse really? So, I mean, I, you, you guys totally, um, wouldn't say change my mind cause I didn't disagree in the first place, but just, um, made me consider actually doing like, a an evil arm day, even though I, I hate training my arms. Um, but, uh, yeah. So was there anything else? Yeah. Maybe, um, just, um, if you want to just quickly elaborate on the evolving sets concept, like that's, that's another unique thing. Yeah. Well, the, the first off, I want to say it, I'm not the one who invented these things, right? It's, it's just, it's mathematical numbers. People have been using it forever, but no one has yeah. really tried to take the time to explain to people how they work. And it's a sad, true. It's a sad realization because if you have a six to 10, many people are not going to know what, what to do with that. So they're just going to wing it and it's not going to be proper. Mm. So when it comes to when it comes to evolving sets, they're much easier to understand than evolving reps. Because an evolving set is going to be a much smaller range. Evolving reps can be a range of six to ten, so that's a four different in terms of numerical value. Sets, I highly encourage people to never go above two. So you might have a two to four, you might have a three to five. That's the total number of sets. The reason why we want to keep the set, uh, the, evolving, the evolving range for the set smaller is because a set represents much more volume than a rep. So it's something to keep in mind. So you, we keep that down. And the way you're going to do it is simple. You might start with two. You start with two sets. You do your two sets. And once you find that you cannot progress more because you've hit the top range of the rep for each set, instead of jumping up in weight, you could add another set. Mm -hmm. so now you do three sets, and on the third set, your reps are going to be lower, naturally, because you're going to be more fatigued. Once you can get them high enough, add a fourth set. What you do now is that you stay with the same weight. It's still as challenging, but you get much more volume. Once you get to four total sets, you go back to two sets with a jump in weight. Now, all of the muscular endurance you, you have built allow you to jump up in weight, and you just repeat the process forever. What this does is that it fluctuates your intensity and volume constantly. And it's something that just occurs naturally where you don't have to deload now. You don't have to use undulating loads now. The total tonnage does this naturally, but it always is going up, right? Because you go up in, in sets, so you accumulate more and more tonnage. Let's say you go up from two to four. There's going to be a peak down as you go back down to two sets, but the weight you're using is higher. So once you go back to four sets again, you have raised. Right? Mm -hmm. There is an undulation, but it's seamless. And just like that, you have a very slow but steady progression. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I actually like that, uh, like that idea of uh, undulating things. Actually, then maybe I'm just gonna um, ask your opinion. So, like the way I undulate these things, um, and did, for the longest time, my progression model has been like the 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 most linear of linear progressions, and it was simply that you had a rep target in the first set let's say it's 10. If you hit 10 with a given weight, you increase the weight. And in subsequent sets, you just let your reps drop. So it would be like 10, seven, five, like something like that. Um, and then on some lifts, I had uh, some reactive deloads. Um, and that would be, so let's say on, on like a deadlift, if you can, I don't know, like deadlift 300 pounds, let's say you can add 
like, let's say five pounds, which is like, I think that's less than 2%, right? Um, if you cannot hit your rep target with that, then that means on a Romanian deadlift, let's say, or stiff-legged deadlift, the pr probably like that means that there was something off with your recovery. So then you would skip the remaining sets. So on that session, you would only do one. Um, yeah, the gist of it. Uh, what, what don't you like about it? What do you like about it? What do you think about this? So the issue I would have with this is that I would say that it's, it's a problem because you're allowing failure to dictate the rest of the program. Meaning that if you cannot get your set, you're going to cut down the other sets. Yeah. But this means you're going to sacrifice on a ton of volume. And the issue is that you yeah. might not have gotten your set because your muscular endurance was not high enough. But now you're creating a response to that where you are losing on even more muscular damage. So your muscular endurance is going to be even lower. You bank on the fact that it's maybe because you weren't recovered enough. So you're trying to be fresher for the next time. That is a very performance-oriented mindset but it's not super tailored towards bodybuilding because you're leaving too much volume on the table. For that type of, uh, of mechanism, I always tell people to not al allow failure to dictate the way you're going to work. Like for example, rotations. People rotate lifts. Some people are going to do Romanian deadlift until they plateau, then they'll rotate to a good morning. That's mm. not a good idea. Because, yeah. because now you've you started to get into the thick of things when the muscular endurance is struggling and you tap out immediately and you move on to a, new, a good morning that you're going to progress again because of neurological adaptation, that you're going to give up again to rotate to another thing once it get, once things get hard. But once the neurological adaptation slows down is when hypertrophy gains truly blossom. So it's, it's, it's something that I don't really encourage. It would be better to maybe lower the weight and still get your sets to get that volume, not kill your recovery, and then bank on the fact you're going to get the sets again with the same weight the next time. Yeah. Um, to be fair, like, like, so this would be like the most aggressive form of reactive deloading. Um, the one I, that I, I do recommend is if you actually regress and, and feel free to disagree with that as well. But like in, in my mind, if you, so with the same weight, you get less reps than the last time, unless, you know, you can explain it by something else, like a chick came up to you in the gym and distracted you or something, then, um, then that's, that's probably an under recovery issue. Um, I think this, and, and I think basically the more aggressively you're pushing volume in general in your, your routine, the more you're benefiting from things like this. Because, I mean, I went through, I think, like a year of training, basically training every single day, like seven days a week. And I, I didn't do any of this. And no, I never do intentional deloads, same way as, as you do, like week long or whatever. Um, so if, if you're doing a moderate volume routine, then you don't need these things as much uh and and to be fair most people have a really hard time with this like uh, the the mindset i have to agree with you on that failure dictating when you deload uh, reactively like this it, most people just don't do them like uh even if i tell them they don't do it um, because it's, it's it's hard like fuck i like bench pressing like just because this happened now i cannot do the rest of my sets fuck you so they just do it so it's tough um so do you have any other like kind of auto regulation auto regulation method that you like using um or you feel like this uh takes care of care of itself the um, evolving sets well for the most part the reason why i do them is because they're like built-in deloads so mm -hmm. once you have them in place, you don't really have to worry about that anymore because yes, it does take care of itself. But you might get to a point where 
an additional cut in fatigue to aid recovery might be helpful. And if that's the case, usually what I do is I just leave a muscle to the side. So for example, if my longer of the tricep is feeling very fatigued and I'm scheduled to work it today, well, I can have a replacement instead. I might do dips. Dips are still going to hit the tricep, the long head as well, it's going to stretch it, but it's not going to be as intense. And it's this acceptation that you're not going to be able to hit the muscle all the time, the way you would like to hit it, that I've integrated in my new program, where it used to be very rigid, like I have to do this lift on this day. Nowadays, I think, okay, maybe I won't do it on that day, but two days afterwards, there's going to be an option for me to do it. The thing that I always want to do is I always want to hit the muscle. So I, I never allow the muscle to just rest and do nothing. I always do some form of active recovery, but it might not be tailored directly towards the muscle. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, and just, just one last thing I wanted to ask you about the ordering of training days. So in the same way as generally you don't hit the same muscle group within 48 hours, um, with there being some exceptions that you mentioned, uh, what about like just general, like, um, I guess like movement patterns, like push. So like, let's say I I'm guessing if you're going to bench press the next day and it's an important bench press day for you, then you wouldn't do like heavy overhead presses the day before and things yes. like this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because again, one, it wouldn't make any sense because the day pre prior to a bench press day would always be a lower body day. So there's no space or room for an overhead press on that day. And then when it comes to pure compound and motion, I think about it differently as with muscles. So for me, the movement patterns are means to hit the muscle. But the way I program is a body part split. It's not a compound split. So this means that I, I rarely repeat compounds. Like, for example, I might do Romanian deadlifts every 10 days. Does it mean that I hit armstrings every 10 days? No, absolutely not. I have a plethora of means to hit armstrings. But I found that if you have a way to hit the muscle, and it's in line and it carries over to other movement patterns, it's fine not, do it, not doing it every four days. I used to be the guy who was obsessed with squat and deadlift every four days. Like mm. every week you squat and deadlift twice. Well, that got me nothing but injuries and regression. Instead, now I focus on the muscle. What can I do to eat the muscle? And this opens up possibilities, reduces injury, and also heightens hypertrophy because now you can actually hit the muscle all the time. Yeah, actually, I, I, I did like that a lot about your approach. And I think especially with, I mean, people are different, like different people have different sensitive spots, like um, I um, communicate, communicating with um, a person, um, a client of mine, he had like two pec tears before. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, like, it's like a young guy, like, um, so, I mean, that you have to be, but probably he has some like thing with his pec area for me it's um it's it's knees that are pretty sensitive so and people are just just different in this way um but yeah like hinges it's probably like like romanian deadlifts probably uh i always say like lower back is not the side delts okay so like uh, don't treat them like that but yeah like some muscles you can just hammer all the time like crazy but uh with with some things you need to be more careful with um so, and do you ever, like, I mean, obviously there has to be an upper limit of this. Uh, like if you hit something like once a month, then probably you're going to regress, even if otherwise you're training that uh, muscle group because neurology, it has to be kept alive <laughs> somewhat at least. So what do you think is like the upper limit of this? Well, if we're going to talk about compound movements, the upper limit is very, very high. Like for example, uh, lift like a good morning. You could do good mornings every 15 days. You would not regress. 
as long as you've been hitting the glutes, lower back, and armstrings throughout these 15 days, because it's a very natural movement. And it's a movement that I call low on the technical rating list. Oh, kitty. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was hoping she would show up because I know you're a cat, cat person. Oh, as my, well. cat is, my cat is taking a nap right there in front of me. So, um, so the good morning is one such example where it's not very technical. So you can allow yourself to not practice it all the time. Whereas you have lifts like the front squats, even if you hit your quads, and I encourage people to try if they want to see if I'm wrong or not, even if you hit your quads, your glutes, and your armstrings a lot, try front squatting every 15 days. You will not progress. You're going to regress because there's too much technicality in the lift. So it's not a purely muscular lift. Once you know that and you have assessed the technical rating of the lift, you can decide the frequency of the lift based on that. So the good mornings are going to make an operation every 15 days and the, the front squats every five days. And just like that, you've balanced muscular damage, technicality and neurological adaptation, and you're good. Yeah. Um, with upper body lifts, is, is there anything in, in your experience? So for the upper body lifts, I have found that a lot of them detrain extremely fast. And this time I can't even really say it's technical. It's just the nature of the beast. Like for example, presses, if you stop overhead pressing for 10 days and you come back, you'll have lost strength. It's mm. unavoidable. But the good thing is that there are 15 ways to overhead press. You can do dumbbell overhead press, sitting overhead press, an incline press, which also works as an overhead press, behind the head, single hand, etc., etc. So now it's a situation where you have to train the movement pattern, but you have so many ways to do it that is going to hit the shoulder that it's not really a problem anymore. And then you have lifts that are like the best of both foods, like curls. Curls are not technical at all. It's one of the least technical lifts. Yeah. And on top of that, they don't really detrain much, meaning that you're not going to lose a ton of strength on curls. What you're going to lose for the most size is endurance, from what I found. So you're going to lose on sets, but not necessarily on the ability to move the weight. That's a problem because I know many people who figured it out and therefore they think, well, I'm sort of stagnating on curls or slowly progressing, so I should be fine. And so they do their one set of like three sets of curls every seven or eight days. But that's the reason why they're not growing is because the, the lift is too permissible. So now you can rest on your laurels, but the issue is that it's still a muscle that requires volume and progression over time. So if you don't train it as much as it requires, you're not going to get big biceps. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Please tell me that the chin-ups are one of those that detrain fast. <sighs> chin-ups? I would say no, oh. actually. God damn it. I know I shouldn't have asked. Because <laughs> oh, now, now uh, at, at first when you said like, yeah, like, like you, can, you can leave a long time between, I was like, oh, fuck. Like I, I knew that I didn't just lose strength on my chin-ups because I didn't train them as frequently. And then like, Upper body lifts the train fast. I got back some hope, and now he said this. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing, the reason why the chin ups don't really train that fast is because chin ups is mostly a vertical pull. I know that people think chin ups, so it's biceps, but yeah. you mostly pull with your upper back. So as long as you're doing other pull up variations and vertical pulls, they shouldn't be retrained at all. Actually, I'm sure mm. that if you did an experience and you took two guys, one that stops doing chin-ups but keeps doing curls and one, one that stops doing chin-ups and keeps doing other types of pull-ups, the first one will, ha- will have a ton, lost a ton of strength on the pull-ups and the second one will have lost almost nothing because the bicep involvement is not that big. Um, yeah, I mean, although, I mean, surely this has to be at least to some extent individual because like I, 
I always feel like my biceps are on fire after like I do them on rings. Um, and so it, although and also technique, technique dependent, like now I've been like just focusing a lot on lat training and I did these pull down variations and I cannot unlearn that now. So I do my chin-ups differently even. So, um, yeah, but, but it is, it is a case by case thing. I know people who do only chin-ups, that's all they do. And they have good biceps. Mm. But the issue is that these are outliers. It's not the majority of the population. And on top of that, the ones that get there tend to be the ones who are very advanced. So they have extremely high numbers on the chin-ups. Most numbers that most people will never get, be able to hit in terms of strength. The vast majority of the population would be better off doing both. Right? I, I'm not a curl supremacist. I'm not saying just do curls. No, do both. You're going to get better results doing both. Someone like me, I have pretty advanced biceps. My chin-up strength is garbage. To be honest with you, yeah, really? yeah. Uh, right now I'm doing sets of twelve, I think, with an additional eight pounds on something like a fat grip. It's not that much. It's a lot of volume weekly because I do a ton of it. It's nucleus overload, but in terms of raw performance, it's not impressive. You would think that someone like me can do more. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely think you could do more. Um, and well, chin ups, um, chin ups are really weird in that. I actually thought about this. Like, why is it that? There are, there are people who can do like 30, 40, like legit bench presses uh, with like, I don't know, 100 kilos or something, like overhead press. Like some people can lift some freakish weights. Like why is it that nobody can do like, let's say 50 chin-ups body weight? Like, like nobody, like strict. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting. And, and it just doesn't work with high reps. It's really hard to progress in my experience. It always works better with like five to eight max yeah, um, uh, and for anyone who wants to press on weighted chin-ups, you should stay within these ranges. All of my programs for chin-ups with weighted are three to five, five by five, never higher than that, because as you said, it's it's the sweet spot for progression. I do them to accumulate volume for the lats, right? So it's a different ball game between do you want to progress in terms of numbers or do you think that just doing them is going to be enough for the lats? For me, the second option works, but it's never something I program for people because I understand it's not realistic for most individuals. Now, you said something interesting. Um, the reason why people cannot do uh, 50 chin-ups is the same reason why no human on earth can do 300 push-ups strict nonstop. And it's not because we're not strong enough. It's because there is a built-in mechanism in muscles that prevents that type of endurance to, uh, from occurring. It's the buildup of lactic acid. Mm. And if you compare a one rep max of someone to what they can do with an empty bar, you realize that. For me, I can do strict curls with 125 pounds for nine reps. Hmm. Okay. If I do an empty bar, I can do maybe 25, 30. Mm -hmm. If you plug these numbers in a calculator, this means this makes absolutely no sense. Why yeah. do I why why can I do so many reps with 125 and when I go back to 30 pounds I can like barely get three times or four times as much? Is it because for some reason my strength is skewed towards the weight? No, it's simply because the muscle is going to work more effectively with the load because whether there is the load there or not, as you move the muscle and blood is being pumped into it, there's that. And again, I think it's a built-in mechanism of the human body that prevents you from going forward. I don't know if it's to prevent a tear. Or it's to make sure that the muscle is always oxygenated. But this is a proof that intensity is key. And doing a ton of reps with a weight that can easily handle is not going to work for the reason you described this, because the number of reps you're getting is not correlated with the actual muscular entrance of the muscle. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would uh, blame fiber types for this or, or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, 
it on chin-ups like you can just feel it like things are just like on fire at a certain point so probably like people differ to some extent like how quickly you can clear those metabolites out and whatever but still um uh one thing i wanted to ask you about is is just volume we mentioned a couple of times like do you think a lot about like your weekly sets um and that that so is that like the main thing that you're trying to optimize when you're thinking about uh, how many sets you're do doing on which session? Or do you think more about like, okay, I did this many sets on this session in 48 hours, I will be good for this and that many. And in 48 hours, I will want to train it again. So, so do you think about it like more short term or like on a weekly basis? Weekly basis always. Mm -hmm. I think the, the number one reason why we program is because it allows you to look into the past and the future at the same time. Yeah. If you do it session by session all the time, you're going to end up in a situation where you might be under-recovered. Because if I were to do the maximum of what I can do in terms of volume every day, I couldn't uh -huh. train the way I do it. Yeah, right? yeah. Because I would, I would overreach every single time. I train six times a week. I can't allow myself to overreach. So I have to keep an eye on what I did yesterday and what I'm going to do tomorrow. And this is when knowing how many sets you do makes a ton of sense. Not to obsess over them, but to think, okay, if I do three sets today, I'll be good for another three sets in 48 hours. And that's the way it works. I could be doing six sets today, but then I won't be good again for 72, 80 hours. Is it worth it? The answer for the most part is no, because the first sets you get are the most intense, highest quality tonnage. These are the ones that you want. So if you keep doing sets just because I can do sets, which I see many people do that mistake, you're just getting junk volume now. It's not doing much for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do the same. And I think most people look at weekly sets these days. Uh, maybe I just assumed that you would have some quirky thing there. <laughs> um, and, and do you have like some sweet spots that you found over time for like... Uh, different muscle groups and, and do you see big differences between them? Like how much they can handle? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's a case-by-case -case thing. Then you have the biology where certain muscles are just more endurance. Some are smaller by nature in every single human. No human has a bigger form than they have a tricep, for example. It doesn't exist. So it's something that you're going to have to look at and then experience with. For me, for example, an outlier that I have is knee flexions. I do very small amounts of knee flexions, very intense, and I progress with that, meaning that on my program, I might do three to four sets of heavy knee flexions a week. I might go as low as that, which is it's, right. it's fairly low for most people. And I can go up as high as eight or nine, but I never go higher than that because it's just not needed. But for the arm strings, I'm always going to have at least 10 sets a week, at least. Mm. And it can go up to 16 or even 18, depending on the week. So it's this is this is for me. Then you have the distinction between big and small muscle groups. Something I found is that big muscle groups should be hidden more frequently because they have less endurance. So for mm -hmm. the forearms, for example, you're going to get your three sets in for a day, hard sets, you're going to be fried. There's no point in continuing. Just mm -hmm. go home and in 48 hours, get your three sets in again. Whereas something like the lads that has a ton of endurance, you have more freedom. You can decide, do you want to fry it on that day, get six heavy hard sets, and then not do it for another 88, 80 hours? Or do you want to just get three, be conservative, and do it again 48 hours later? There's more freedom with that. The small muscles, is, to me, is there's, there's no point in hitting like the tricep once a week. You're going to just leave, leave gains on the table. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, de definitely. Definitely. So out of curiosity, do you enjoy trading biceps? Um, just because I, I fucking hate it. But uh, I mean, yeah, like because because you, you did say that you trained it a lot. And that's what got you these impressive arms. But 
you know, the bicep training is is my passion. Actually, for mm. the past year and a half, I've I greatly reduced my bicep training frequency on purpose because my biceps were too big, and they were taking over the entire arm. So I had to wait for the longer of the tricep to catch up. I'm finally there. I'm finally to a spot where I can finally train bicep more. It's a liberation because I used to be like three sets in and think, okay. Like, I want to keep going. I want to do another next extra set of heavy curls. And I had to tell myself, no, you can't do that. It's going to once again create an imbalance. You have to stop, move on to something else. So yeah. definitely, I love training biceps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that, that, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I will have to learn to love it a bit more. By the way, it's really interesting. Like, people always say, like, you know, like, train your triceps because, like, that's most of your arms. And it's, it's really interesting because, like, I put your arms, for example, next to some other guy on, I think next to Jeffrey, actually. And uh, like, it, in his case, it's true. Like, it's not that much biceps. Most of it is tricep. And that's just like gives it it like the the rest of it. For you, like, it's, it's, it's mostly biceps, uh, like with Arnold, like he was also mostly biceps. So it's interesting how, and both of you have like big arms, so... Um, yeah. After that, it's, it's also the aesthetic preference, right? I always want my arm to be skewed towards bicep, mm -hmm. but I can't allow it to just look like a stick with an egg on top. There's still needs yeah. to be mass somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, man, um, there, there, there's like one, one last question I'm going to ask you, and then I'm going to let you go because I just looked at the clock and I had a meltdown. Like, I didn't realize I was this abusive of your time. So, thank you so much for taking this much time. Um, Nucleus overload training. They're not gonna go into it deeply because you like just they should just go to your channel. You have like three long videos where you're outlining like everything there. Basically, do you think this is something that um, intermediates and newer lifters should be messing with, or it's only appropriate for experienced ones? Novices definitely shouldn't touch that because it's going to teach them bad habits. A novice should learn how to do hard sets consistently. Once you get into intermediate levels, meaning that you start to program for yourself, you understand your strength and you have your own goals, now you can start messing with it, but only for one muscle group. I encourage an intermediate to pick one muscle group you're going to do nucleus overload on and do it for a year, a year and a half. This is not a small time project. It's a very long time. And then the more you progress, the more you understand your body and what needs to be worked on and needs to catch up, the more you can slap on. For me right now, I'm doing nucleus overload for tricep, lateral tricep, not long head, for calves, for mm -hmm. lats, and for the last one that always escapes me, forearms. So that's four. Right, it's a lot. Most people don't need yeah. that. So this, yeah, it's going to be like a, a case by case thing that is going to be slowly implemented in the program. Right, right. Okay, okay, makes total sense. Um, well, man, I think uh, we should wrap it up here. We didn't talk about nutrition, but maybe someday uh, later. I mean, maybe I would definitely be interested in uh, getting you back at some point. Uh, I know you're a busy person. Um, gym work family and not that much else so if i can fit in there somewhere in the future it would be awesome but i i really do appreciate man that you took a long time with me today and uh, i really enjoyed this so thank you so much um, likewise it was a great talk yeah yeah um so please tell us uh, where we can find you and i'll send people there
Well, I'm mostly on YouTube. I have an Instagram, but that's mostly going to be pictures of me shirtless. It's not that interesting. <laughs> so I usually upload three to five times a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. If you like long uh, videos, if you like mostly informative content, if you're interested in philosophy or anime and manga, this is most of what I do. And uh, you are welcome on board. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, NH, uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man.